Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by MFS. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but final control remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i podcast. I'm here today with Ward Brown, who's Fixed Income Portfolio Manager for MFS, and we'll be talking today about emerging market depth. Ward, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Father. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start uh, with emerging market depth, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in investing? Sure. Actually, uh, my career started as an economist. Um, I did a PhD in economics at uh, the LSE and then joined the International Monetary Fund. And I uh, I was fascinated by economics. I still am. I, I liked how uh, you could use good economic analysis, which is both an art and a science to understand how economies would evolve. And eventually I, I came to the notion that I really would like to actually put my analysis to the test a little bit, put it into action. And that's how I came into the world of investing. Yeah, and I think you, you did a doctoral thesis on how credit conditions affect business cycles. I was yeah. thought it was the other way around. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, it, the idea there was um, if firms don't have the same access to financing throughout the cycle. So in a downturn, they get restricted in their access to credit. Would that force them to alter how much they produced? Uh, the interesting thing, when you look at at, uh, at business cycles, the part of the business cycle that varies the most is the investment firms put into their inventories. Even though that's a very mm-hmm. small fraction of GDP, it moves around like crazy. So it it's kind of suggested, okay, uh, when when a downturn happens, um, these uh, many parts of the economy don't have enough cash and they need to cut back production more and write out inventories. And then they rebuild in, in, a, in other parts of the cycle. It tends to amplify rather than cushion the cycle. Right, right. You then uh, started working as an economist for the IMF. Can you tell me a little bit about the experience there and, and maybe some war stories? Oh, yeah, that was... That was a really uh, interesting experience. I, I, I covered a range of countries from from Mauritania to Argentina, and uh, it was you know they're a fantastic group of people who work there, and and the most interesting most interesting circumstances. And particularly, I worked on countries where the IMF had active loans going on, and and there are many uh, circumstances where. Uh, I would be involved in uh, late night negotiations. I remember when I first joined, I worked on Romania and we would be up all night with the Minister of Finance negotiating the fine details of that program, what he could do, what he couldn't do. And he was quite a character. So it was, 
it was a, a, a quick uh, schooling in, in, in how negotiations of that magnitude operate. Yeah, I can imagine that it would also be uh, some politics involved in that role. Yes, yes. And actually, that was the, the really great thing about uh, working at the IMF. There was, I came to it with my PhD. So I had these, uh, you know, I had the theories, I had all of the econometric tools, but I really learned applied economics there. You know, part of applied economics is thinking about the political considerations. What are the contours of what is politically possible and what isn't possible? The IMF spends a lot of time doing that, uh, thinking about what, what can be done realistically uh, from a political perspective. And then I learned a, a bunch of other things, the nitty gritty of, of, of national accounts data, for example. And I, I think actually most interestingly, I, I learned uh, very much that the science of economics, the, the art of it comes in applying the tools to the right circumstances. So we would look at a range of countries and each country is different. And so the tools you need to use in the analysis has to be adjusted depending on that country. And that was something that I found really interesting and, and learned a great deal of from my IMF experience. And so with some of those countries that you were involved, did you see any progress or is it more a bit of muddling through? Well, you know, um, often when you're in the, you know, in a program, you're trying to get out from a more difficult situation. And so, yes, we, we did see programs, there would be progress, there'd be success, but then the longer term development just takes, it, it just takes a lot longer. The IMF will, will be yeah. there throughout, but in a different capacity, sometimes lending, sometimes just advising. Um, and so I tend to be more in the, in the fire department part of the IMF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fighting fires. So yeah, exactly. I suppose the IMF deals with a lot of countries that could be considered emerging markets. Is, is that where it sort of all started of you getting into emerging market debt? Yes, it is. And, and so the IMF deals with every country. I really focus on emerging markets because I thought that was the most applied where you could really do the analysis and provide um, advice to governments that I think was genuinely helpful for how they manage their economies. At the, at the higher end of the development scale, you know, Australia, Canada, there you're really doing, you know, applied economic research and having more research type of discussions. And I preferred getting my hands a little dirtier, you know, having more interaction with actual policymakers and, and seeing some policies get put into, into, into action. So being involved in sort of that, that really high level, do you sometimes look at today's development in monetary policy and go like, oh, you're doing it all wrong? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, it, that's, that's a big question, actually. One thing, you know, that was really, really surprising. I mean, quantitative easing is, I think it's, it's new territory. And we're, yeah. it seems like it's been around for a long time, but it really hasn't been around for long enough to understand exactly what some of the implications may be. But what was fascinating in the pandemic last year is that some emerging market economies actually adopted it. And it's like the world just came full circle. In the past, monetary financing of fiscal deficits was like the worst thing a country could do. That just led to bad, bad outcomes. And here we were in a situation where some emerging market economies could actually do that. And to tell you the truth, that so far, that was the right course of action. It has been beneficial. Yeah, yeah. If we look um, at more of an investment view at emerging market debt, what do you think is the role of emerging market debt in sort of a broader multi-asset portfolio. I mean, 
we, we look in Australia very much from sort of the, the super fund, the pension fund perspective, where they have broad multi-asset portfolios. Um, is it more of a return play or do you look look at it as more of diversification and risk management? Well, it's, it's both. Um, emerging market debt does offer high returns, high yields, and uh, excellent sharp ratios. It, in many, many portfolios, that, that sharp ratio, an asset class with a good sharp ratio is going to help most portfolios. And, and emerging market debt has the additional benefit of being fairly low correlation to other major asset classes. So it's a diversifier and it's, and it's an asset class that's going to improve the risk-adjusted returns of many different types of portfolios. But it also, I think, brings a bit of volatility into the portfolio. How, how do you manage that? Well, it, it, it does. It depends what you're comparing it to. And I think there are different ways you can manage it. If you're comfortable with additional volatility, then you can have that go up in your portfolio and have increased returns. Alternatively, you can reduce other asset classes that have high volatility but lower sharp ratios. Yep. You know, there, there's, a, there's a range of ways to make room for emerging market debt. When, when I talk to asset owners in Australia, sometimes I get a little bit of a maybe call it cynical view, but they say, well, emerging market debt is basically just a currency play. What, what is your view on that? I think that if you were to look at the short term movements, that's understandable. They'd have that view. The, the currency is the most volatile part of emerging markets. And so when you look at short-term moves, yes, the currency does that. But that's not the case if you look at the long run. And those long-run benefits come largely from the carry, the higher carry that's offered in an emerging market debt. That's why we believe you know, it's a great structural allocation. It, it, in the long run, it's going to bring that carry, and that, that's going to win the day for long-run performance. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it also comes with this great diversifying feature for many portfolios. Yeah. So if you look at the different ways of allocating, um, do you favor local over hard currency or maybe a blend of both? You know, what's what's interesting, um, that depends. The answer to that depends on, on the currency of the investor. And uh, Australian investors, investors who care about their Australian dollar returns, are, I think, in a very unique uh, position in the, in the developed market world because of the high correlation between the Australian dollar and many EM currencies. Because of that, the returns to local currency debt in Australian dollars are much less volatile than, than they would be measured in other currencies such as the US dollar. So uh, local currency debt has a lot more to offer the Australian investor. And I think that's a great opportunity actually to, to have exposure to local currency debt for Australian investors. So, so would you say that because of that correlation, the risk is r- relatively lower for Australian investors compared to, say, the US or, or the UK? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you if you just look at the the volatility of the returns in local currency when you measure them in Australian dollars, we had those coming out at around 7.2%. That's a standard deviation versus 11 to 12% in US dollars. So a significant reduction. And of course, the return is the same because the cost of cash in Australia is pretty cl- basically the same as it is in the US. So the carry is, is no different. Yeah, yeah. So in, in theory, in Australian investors could hold a little bit more of that uh, compared to their other developed markets. Yes, I, I, in theory, they, they should. I think it represents a great opportunity for Australian investors. So when we're looking at Australian investors, whether they use local, hard or a combination, can they also blend the various approaches? 
Actually, that's that's a great question. We've we've looked at that uh, quite a bit, and in fact, blending hard currency and local currency is even more beneficial for Australian investors than investing in only local or only hard. It, it turns out that when you look at it from an Australian investor's point of view, uh, that is measuring these returns in Australian dollars, the correlation between local currency EM debt and hard currency EM debt is quite low. So there's great benefit in terms of reducing volatility by blending the two. And that really, in our view, is the best course for the Australian investor to take some blend of local and hard currency. Yeah. So if you think about the ways of allocating apart from the currency, in, in what sort of shape uh, does it make most sense to allocate to it? Should it be a standalone allocation, like a dedicated emerging market debt allocation or as part of an Asian strategy or even an international strategy? I think the most sense is to be a standalone dedicated product with the widest possible mandate. So not a regional specification. You want all emerging markets and you want a dedicated active manager. The reason I say that is the more emerging markets you have, the you know the markets aren't entirely efficient in, in emerging markets, which is where the opportunity comes from. So you want to have an active manager that can take advantage of mispricings and deliver alpha and providing that active manager with the broadest range of, of emerging market assets that he or she can invest in is, is really the way to go. Now, if we can delve a little bit into the different regions in, in emerging markets, I think one of the key developments is that the Chinese government bonds will be added to the, the FTSE World Government Bond Index from October, I think over a period of 36 months, so it will be quite gradually. But it does mean that there's an expectation that more institutional investors will allocate to Chinese bonds. Do you think that this will affect uh, these bonds? Is there a potential of a little bit of market distortion? And what is sort of your view on, on Chinese bonds themselves? It's a very big bond market. Uh, there, there could be a bit of distortion, but I think it'd be temporary because the market is is pretty big. Mm. You know, our views, uh, my views right now on, on Chinese bonds, are one of the one of the great things about them is that they are not highly correlated with uh, developed market bonds, in particular with the U.S. So, having them in your portfolio is 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 an example of the diversification benefits of emerging market debt. That's a great example of it. I mean, they are they're lower yielding than many other emerging markets, but they also have fairly low volatility. So the sharp ratio is still there and the diversification. From a structural perspective, we like Chinese debt. And of course, our process looks at where China is in the cycle as to whether we want to be mainly invested in the debt or mainly invested in the currency. Yeah. Uh, and that, that that's part of our active management. So when we talk about Chinese equities, we often get a comment, oh, it's a market is dominated by, by retail investors. Is that similar for the bond space? No, I, no, I, it isn't. Uh, the bond space is mainly institutional and, and mainly local. I, th I think uh, foreigners, mm -hmm. they're single digits in terms of the percentage of that market that is owned by foreigners. So it's really the big local players that dominate that market. And the volatility experience is much different than that in the equity market. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And so when it opens up and, and the local investors get, well, the percentages goes down of what they own, do you think that that will change the characteristics of how these bonds behave in the long term? Well, I think it will probably increase a little bit that correlation. But, you know, if it, it is a huge market. Yeah. You know, when we think of emerging markets, I think the typical thing we think about is a small country. And so when a small country has open capital accounts 
it's going to be greatly affected by what's happening in the major parts of the world, especially the US and the, in, in the Eurozone. But China is not like that. It's the size of the US and the Eurozone. So it's another big market and they'll start to affect each other. It won't be just, uh, you know, the, the developed market dog wagging the EM tail. They're, they're, yeah. China is like the same size, so it'll, it'll go back and forth. So when we talk about China, obviously there's a lot of, you know, geopolitical events surrounding the country. Um, there's the trade wars with the US, with, with Australia as well. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong, what might happen in Taiwan. When you look at all that, does that impact the way you make your investment decisions? Do you keep an eye on sort of these big geopolitical trends? Well, I, I'd say this in a way there's two questions there uh, because there's other geopolitical trends. They, in general, on the geopolitical trends, absolutely. That matters a lot for emerging markets. What's happening, what, what the Federal Reserve is doing, what's happening to commodity prices, big, big geopolitical moves, uh, are, are critical to our process and they're important for understanding how to position emerging market debt. In terms of um, the China-specific geopolitical tensions, you have to be careful about where to take risk in China. In local currency, the corporate market is not that well developed. So the majority of investment opportunities in the debt are in government bonds and in state-owned uh, banks. Um, and those are very safe assets in the Chinese perspective. But in the hard currency, there's a range of, of options and you really need to do uh, your credit homework to know if you're being paid for the risks because there are underlying tensions that may not spill out into large large crises, but can have real impacts on different sectors of the economy. And you, you do take that into account in the investment process. So we're very focused. Our team is extremely focused on doing that fundamental, bottom-up fundamental analysis to, to make sure that we are cognizant of all the risks that, that are involved in, in taking a position in a, in a specific credit. Do you draw some of your experience from your IMF period? into that analysis, that sort of big picture analysis? Yeah, I think, you know, the big picture, big moves with with major economic actors, they, they, they move a little more slowly than I think the markets tend to appreciate. The markets can get in this mindset that something's gonna happen tomorrow or else it's never gonna happen. You know, it's like, it, there's no in between. Yeah. And um, the, the reality is these are, these are longer term trends geopolitical issues tend to represent longer term trends. They may have tail risks to one side or the other. And the key in, in is to understand those trends and see whether or not the current pricing of what you're considering investing in is offering you any compensation for those trends. I think in the case of China, by and large, the, the government bonds, yes, these are, these are slow moving and there, there's a lot of different aspects to these issues. In the case of other countries such as Russia, there's another example where uh, tensions really had a big impact hmm. uh, for, for quite a while. And it's still in some of the hard currency assets, the, the, the rewards, what's being offered is probably not compensating for this tail risk of a, a bigger issue arising in, in, uh, in the geopolitics with Russia. You, you also mentioned a little bit earlier uh, corporate bonds. So what are some of the more interesting areas there? I mean, when I think of China, is it all about tech companies or is it more the stable SOEs? Well, the, there's a large chunk of stable SOEs and, and, and the banks, and we're, we're invested in a range of those. It, there's also the property sector, uh, very topical right now because Evergrande is having some 
one of the largest property developers in China is, you know, apparently having some issues with one of its banks. It's a, that's a, uh, one of its creditors. And um, so th that's a sector that is going to be interesting for um, the immediate future, just to see how the government handles any potential credit issues with Evergrande. We've been involved in that sector. We're, we're a little cautious on it right now because of these broader issues. Um, but that's that's a place where there has been yeah. decent opportunities. There's opportunities in actually in the gaming sector that's run in Macau. There's some very interesting places there. Right now, I would say some of the interesting opportunities that we've been looking at are ones that have suffered from the pandemic, but are, are balance sheets that can make it through and still offer interesting rewards for, for the investors. So gaming is one of those, for example. Right. And in other countries, there's there's different sectors that have offered those returns too. When you look at a sector like gaming, um, do you sort of worry about potential government intervention there? I mean, we saw it at a smaller level where um, the government stepped in and prevented the end financial IPO, um, but they could also at a higher level put down blanket regulations over, over an industry like gaming. Um, is that something that you worry about? Well, it, it generally it is it not. I, I think that the um, benefits and 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 it, the benefits of gaming, uh, many many Chinese enjoy enjoy it, and there's significant revenues, there's significant employment. These are the type of factors that go into political calculations. I mean, you know, you can ask yourself to severely impact an industry. What's going to be the the political cost to a government for doing that? In the case of gaming, we think that that we right now don't believe that that heavy hand is is something that would be would is a risk right now for that industry yeah i think we're more more worried about the genuine uh, economics of the industry you know it, it's gone a great deal of time with much lower uh, activity than normal and that uh, and some companies do companies have the balance sheet to be able to get through perhaps not the best exit scenario from the pandemic. Yeah. Right? They have enough strength to get through a, a, a mediocre exit path in the pandemic. That's sort of what, what's dominating our thinking in that industry. One of the reasons why I asked is because I read this um, article about China putting in a curfew for e-games, for, for basically kids sitting on the computers and the government has decided when it's 10 o'clock, computer's off. Um <laughs> And, I, I um, try to do that with my own son and it hasn't worked. <laughs> no, especially not during lockdown. Right. But, um, I, I thought that, that's sort of a, a blanket rule that, that might have been quite an unexpected move. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it has impacted the, the e-gaming industry in China, but it's sort of, you know, a bolt out of the blue. Well, you know, I, I I don't know. I don't want to get into too much of the weeds here, but the one thing about investing in emerging markets is expect the unexpected. Yeah. And what was that? It sounds that's like a catchphrase, but that means you've got to be paid. There's we we have to be modest about how much we can forecast and how much we know about these economies. It's really, no investor can sit here and say, "Well, I know everything that's going on." I don't, and I need to be compensated for the stuff I don't know and that could happen. And I know from long experience in emerging markets, something like that will happen. Yeah. And so you have to you, you have to have that compensation in in the in the yields and spreads you're earning. Yeah. If you look at uh, sort of your exposures, uh, can you tell me a little bit about where you, you are um, overweight and underweight, and what are some of the more interesting countries? Well, on the on the local currency, it's 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 it, it's an interesting time because we're we're seeing some divergences. Uh, in general, this is uh, 
we're coming slowly out of the pandemic recession. So we're starting rate hiking cycles in a number of countries, but it, largely in Latin America, what the market has priced in has been quite a bit of hikes, quite, you know, they're pricing in a kind of a really powerful, powerful recovery. And we're just not convinced that that's going to be what ultimately occurs here. Right. And so there's opportunities. The yields now in, in many of these countries are are quite high and they've pressed in a lot of hikes. So we, we like a lot of uh, local debt, actually. Even though these banks are hiking, it seems odd to be investing in local debt to many when, when there's a hiking cycle going on. But that's one area where we see a lot of opportunity. And can you tell me a little bit about your views on, on sort of duration? Is there an average duration that, that is sort of a sweet spot? That will depend on the part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Right now, I would say if I had to make a generalization, it's kind of the five-year part of the, of the curve because it, it's it's capturing all of that risk premium that's there from from many, many rate hikes being priced into curves. But at the same time, it's it, it has lower volatility than further out the curve and is less exposed to, you know, issues such as fiscal performance or just general sovereign risk than 10 and 20 and 30 year parts of the curve. So whereabouts in the cycle do you think we are at the moment? Then? I think we're early cycle and rate hikes, but I don't think it's going to go as long as this is the market surprising. Yeah, that that idea of rate hikes, I discussed this this with a couple of people where you sort of see a lot of bullishness on the equity side. We see a little bit of rate hikes, but at the same time, we've had this pandemic. And when you sort of talk to people on the street, there seems to be a lot more underlying economic pain than sort of seems to be reflected in markets. Do you think there's a chance that we might go into a sort of a, a correction or see a depressed cycle for longer than people expect or the markets expect? Well, I, I do think that the markets, we're talking at a very general level, I think, is your question. Uh, there are a lot of markets that aren't offering a great deal of cushion for something other than a clean, strong exit from the pandemic. And I, I would like to invest, and we do invest in assets that are still that are offering some cushion because I don't think it's going to work out as cleanly as as the markets are pricing here. And I mean, part of that is is because you know global central banks are just providing so much liquidity, mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. But you know th th that liquidity does will exit at some point, and it's likely to exit after the strongest part of the economic recovery is over, which means there isn't going to be uh, a, a lot of themes to grab onto to own expensive assets. Yeah, Growth will be okay, but slower and, and policy accommodation will be receding. So, you know, the cushion will be even less there. Yeah. So you've been investing in emerging market uh, that for quite a long time. If you look back over the years and, you know, there's been a lot of interesting and, and crises in, in that period, we've seen the global financial crisis, the Asian crisis. How does the current you know, situation with the pandemic compare to, to those uh, uh, periods? Is, is this a more difficult time to invest or, or was, was the Asian crisis, for instance, a, a more difficult time? Well, one part that makes it more difficult is that it's a health crisis. And so there's uh, that's like an added layer of uncertainty, um, which I think investors in general, it's just difficult to price. So, you know, we now look at like, you know, how the case counts are doing in each country to try and get a sense of how that might impact the economic trajectory for the country. 
so that that's a layer of it that has um, made it more complex and I think it's lifted the uncertainty. At the same time though, you know, the the economy, global economy in general was handled this in a tremendous way that really should give people reasons for optimism. Yeah. First of all, the advances in developing the vaccine that came about so incredibly quickly uh, with a technology that has as I understand great promise for for future uh, issues and then the ability to work from home that mm. we really saw, I think it was one of those circumstances that actually demonstrated how powerful the digital and technology revolution has been. And with that demonstration, I expect this revolution to pick up speed. Yeah. Well, just the fact that we can have this conversation uh, over the internet is uh, an illustration of that, I think. It, remarkable, isn't it? I've, I've, at our company, we've been working from home for over a year now um, and we'll gradually go back soon but no one would have thought that possible when this started in fact it's been extremely possible and it's it's, it's shocked people how how well we can function in, in using technology to a much greater extent than we were using before this happened yeah yeah it really lies by the full extent of the the impact of the internet i think of yeah. all parts of society yeah. well what Thank you very much for this conversation. It was uh, very interesting. And uh, yes, yeah, stay safe. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Excellent. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.